Welcome to Illuminata Podcast. This is Christina. This is Charlotte. And we are two young professional scientists. Here we want to share the voice of brilliant women shaping the future of agriculture. If you want to feel empowered and inspired, keep, keep listening. So just like a quick introduction, I met Aruhi at the World Food Prize when I went there because uh, I won the, the Women in Triticum Prize. And, and so we, we were invited at this conference and I was just so impressed. She was like participating in, in this panel of regenerative agriculture. And, and she was, we were sorting, sort of like hosting the panel. And yeah, it was like part moderation, part Yes, moderating, yeah. Yes, and I was just so impressed by her attitude and her public speaking. It was so, I don't know, I was just so good and you were so like so much energy and I loved it. So yes, after after this panel, I just went straight to you and just asking you if I could interview you for this for my pod, for our podcast. And I think you'd be like, yeah, like you're a great speaker and a great uh, presence. So yeah, welcome to our podcast. <laughs> oh, that's really kind of you to say, Charlotte. Thank you. And it was such, it was so lovely to like see all of the young people in the audience. I was very um, re-inspired, re-energized and um, very happy to see as many young folks in attendance as we did. And then of course our UC San Diego connection just drilled home for me that I had <laughs> to keep the conversation going with you. <laughs> that's fantastic thank you I'm so grateful for that <laughs> so have you been um, I'm fine I'm fine I'm just studying my postdoc here at San Diego at Salk Institute so it's been a like it's been brutal like just switching from Australia to the U.S. United States culture <laughs> it was it was like a big change but like I'm getting used to and yeah it's just beautiful here like yeah, because you got into town, what, a couple of weeks ago or something like that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I'm still adjusting to, <laughs> yes, to here. But it's it's promising and I loved it. So like so far, oh, it's good. good. <laughs> That's really good. Glad to hear that. Yes. Yeah, so hi. This is my first time as a co-host as well. So <laughs> yeah, and I'm, the hey, other, I'm the other Ecuadorian replacing Emily. So <laughs> For the audience that knows Emily's voice, and now you hear my voice, uh, yeah, I'm the other Ecuadorian <laughs> and the new co-host, so hi. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to read Arohi's uh, bio from NRDC website. So Arohi Sharma advocates for policies that promote regenerative agriculture to mitigate climate change, protect soil health, conserve and reduce water use, and restore biodiversity. Before joining NRDC, she was in graduate school where she researched how to incentivize multi-stakeholder partnerships to help mitigate climate change and work for the Ethiopian government to help craft the nation's first sustainable agricultural development strategy. Uh, please be patient, it's a long bio, <laughs> a lot of achievements. Prior to graduate school, Sharma served as a legislative staffer on Capitol Hill 
for the U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee and Senator Cory Booker. She holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of California, San Diego, and a master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. In 2020, Sharma was awarded the John E. Bryson Fellowship for her work on water and agriculture. She is based in NRDC's Santa Monica office. There you go. Congrats. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's a mess. What a word like soup. <laughs> curriculum, that's a mess of curriculum. <laughs> you got to flare it up a little bit for the personal bio on the website, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay, so we're going to start with the questions. So usually we start with uh, personal questions. After all this, like, super long introduction <laughs> if you can give us like a quick biography so where are you from your childhood and life path oh how do I keep that in a concise response I am from the desert I was born in the desert California desert I was raised in Los Angeles and to I'm a child of two incredibly lovely powerful energetic and passionate immigrants from India who immigrated about 35 years or so ago. Um, I think very similar to most immigrant stories, wanted to pursue the American dream and, and start a family here and give their kid the best life possible. So I'm, I'm very grateful and still in awe of the journey that they made um, with what, $300 in their pocket. I had a very joyous childhood um, surrounded by parents who showered me with a lot of love and really instilled a sense of curiosity in me. They always um, pushed me to explore, to be adventurous, to meet new people, um, to see things from multiple perspectives. And I think that's those, those lessons from childhood have naturally propelled me into a year, into a, a life of politics and public service and political science. And so I'm, I feel really lucky to be in the position that I am in now. Wow. That's so great. Like all this nice thing from, from your parents. I think it yeah. is beautiful. Like I am who I am, who I am in large part because of how they raised me. So I yeah. see it that way. Yeah, me too with my parents. I am who I am because of them. So they are yeah. my model, my forever models. So <laughs> Oh, I like that phrase. Forever models. I'm gonna I'm gonna yes. borrow that. Talking about models, who is or who are your role models? Oh well, I'm gonna borrow and use the the phrase that you just used, Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> my parents, my mom and dad are my forever models. Yeah. I think the work ethic they instilled in me, the the sort of approach of um curiosity, like I mentioned, and always, especially with my mom, like who encourages me, pushes me even to always think of others and think of how I can give back to people, even if I don't know who they are, how I can make life better for, for my community and for other communities, especially for kids. She always encourages me to think about um, how I can give back to kids and make sure that they live in a more just, equitable and, and healthier world. Um, and my dad, my, so my mom and my dad are my forever role models, forever oh. models. <laughs> That's sweet. And uh, last question is, you, do you have like, did you have any dreams or aspiration when, when you were a child? Oh my goodness. Um, that changed every year. <laughs> it started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh. Just like every kid, I think I wanted the first career I remember ever sharing or vocalizing with my mom was to be a firefighter. Um, so I wanted to be a firefighter and then I wanted to be an astronaut. 
I still kind of want to be an astronaut. Me too. Um, <laughs> their jobs are so cool. Um, and then I wanted to be a professional soccer player because I got obsessed with soccer, football, as it's known in every other audience except for the United States. And then a professional opera singer. I got really into music for a little bit. So I think it just you it depended on what year you caught me and I wanted to do something different. Well, yeah, but I actually so cool. ended up, I ended up doing, um, being professionally trained in, in Western classical music. So I, there were several years where I could actually sing opera operatically, not so much anymore. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for the overview of your life. Very, <laughs> yeah, very condensed overview. So now we're going to go more to the academic side of your life. For all the folks out there or even ourselves like that we don't know what is regenerative agriculture could you please tell us what this is in your own words yeah so here's the the small the big and the short of it it's regenerative agriculture is a philosophy of farming a philosophy of ranching that is based in indigenous wisdom where farmers and ranchers grow crops, grow livestock, steward ecosystems in harmony with nature and their communities. There is a lot packed into that one sentence. Um, and I'll say that sentence again, a philosophy of farming and ranching based in indigenous wisdom, where farmers and ranchers grow in harmony with nature and their communities. And it's really a, a contrast to the more industrial sort of extractive agriculture that I think um, most people, when I use those words, there is an image that pops up in their head about, you know, pollution and confined feedlots and monocropping and sort of destructive practices that pops up. Mm -hmm. And so what I've learned from the folks, from the farmers and ranchers that, that I've interviewed through my work is a complete sort of reversal of that industrial model into one that focuses on giving back. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for mm -hmm. the definition and for the contrast as well. Um, so what motivated you to become an advocate for policies that promote regener regenerative agriculture? How did you get into this field yeah. of work? So I got into... I could answer that question. Let me know how you want me to answer that question. So I can I can say like how I got into the field of nonprofit advocacy, or I can talk about like regenerative agriculture more specifically. Um, maybe the first, maybe let's start with how you started with nonprofit and then, yeah. Great. So in undergraduate, I studied political science. And just like every curious political scientist, I watched a bunch of documentaries uh, mm -hmm. in college. There was one in particular that propelled me into the field of agricultural policy and food policy, and that documentary was Food Inc. I don't know if you've heard of it. Christina's <laughs> nodding her head. <laughs> I've watched it. Yes, yes. It's like the one with a cow and a barcode or something. Yep, that comes to mind. Yes. Wow, okay. you knocked it out of the park. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I watched that documentary with my dad on the couch, right? I was home probably for like a holiday break. Mm -hmm. And at one point in the movie, the narrator says, we no longer grow our food, we manufacture our food. Mm 
I'm sitting there like, what, what does that even mean? I can't contemplate. I can't really put my wrap my head around what that means. And mind you, I growing up, I would go back home to India every couple of years to see my family and my grandparents. And my dad always made it a mission to, to take us out to our family farm in uh, the rural part, a rural part of India. So I grew up seeing a very different style system of agriculture than what I was seeing on, on this documentary on Food Inc. I was in college at the time. I was studying political science. So I, I started thinking about like why these two different systems of agriculture existed in two different countries. How, how did that happen? How did the United States develop this model where we no longer grow our food, we manufacture our food, and India have a more like rural, less tech-focused, but also gone through the Green Revolution and was figuring out how to deal with, you know, the sort of inequities and um, economic boon and growth that came from the Green Revolution. And so I tackled, I tried to, I spent the rest of my um, college, my undergraduate researching this topic of how we got two different systems of agriculture between the United States and India. And let's just say that by the time graduation came around, I was still thirsting for an answer. Um, had a better idea of what happened, but wanted to learn more, really wanted to, to learn how policy was made, how the political sausage policy making uh, stuff happened that led to the creation of these two systems. And so after graduation, oh my goodness, I had every intention of going to law school. So I was like studying for the LSATs on the side, trying to figure out if like law school was right for me. But there was a part of me that also um, knew that I wanted to do something a little different, a little like unconventional, like not go to law school right away, but try and, and learn a little bit more, get some more professional training under my belt. And, um, I don't think my parents knew about this at the time, but I was, as I was studying for the LSATs, I was also applying to a bunch of internships in Washington, DC, mm -hmm. um, particularly like for uh, think tanks and research institutes and on Capitol Hill. Um, in the Senate to wow. see if I could like be an intern and learn about policymaking. And thank goodness. Yeah, someone I'm very grateful to this woman, uh, Nicole Carlotto, who took a chance on me and um, welcomed me into the internship program for Senator Barbara Boxer's office, who is the senator of California back in, in one of two senators from California back in 2012. And within, I think, 10 days, I had packed up my life in California and moved out to Washington, D.C. for this internship with Senator Barbara Boxer's office. And since then, I spent the next three years sort of bopping around different offices in, in the Senate, really learning how the policy sausage was made and um, was very lucky enough. I networked my, I don't know if I'm allowed to use this word, so bleep it out if you need to, but I networked my ass off while I was out in D.C., and landed my dream job on the Senate Action Committee. And that was during the 2013 markup of the Farm Bill. And Charlotte and Christina, like I saw, I was in the room. I was in the rooms there, you know, the conversations about what should be included in the Farm Bill and what shouldn't be included in the Farm Bill were happening. And I was fascinated. I was curious. I was sometimes angry. I was sometimes surprised. I was sometimes happy and inspired. Um, but I felt really lucky to have had that opportunity 
under my belt and you know develop that professional skill set of of learning um, how to read code and statute and how to understand policy writing and policy making and how to reach out to researchers who like had PhDs in these fields of agroeconomics and um, soil health and commodities futures trading and all that stuff and learn from them about the changes that that needed to happen in the farm bill. So yeah, that was that was sort of like how I made my way into the the policy making space. And after you know, I finished my tenure in D.C. with Senator Cory Booker, um, who was very passionate about all things agriculture and environment and energy policy. Um, went to graduate school after that. Found my dream job in in working in the nonprofit sector for the Natural Resources Defense Council and. When I say I could not have written a better job description, like I'm telling the truth, this I, it feels like I found I found my place. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. I love that. I mean, just from I don't know, you applied for internships and then you got a 10 year career out of that and you got so much out of it. And that's just a reminder for all of us that we need to apply to as many things as possible, because sometimes it seems like they won't take me because I'm not, I don't have enough qualifications or education, whatever. And that's not always true. And you just have to try. Oh so. yeah. my goodness. Yeah. I and wonder Charlotte, if you're about to say the exact same thing I was, which yes. is when women look at job descriptions, yeah. they will not apply to a job or an internship. If they see one qualification that they yeah. feel they do not meet, men don't have that problem. No, <laughs> they do. They apply. They just apply. They apply. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They don't care about it. Uh -huh. they just apply, and yeah, we don't do like because we are we are overthinkers. Like we overthink all the time. I usually I'll just go for it, mm -hmm. and even if it's hard, even if it's like ah, I just go for it. <laughs> and exactly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Like what's because the worst that can know. happen? They say no, yeah, and because, like so. Yeah. You move on. Because yeah, you never know what what could happen. Because like sometimes they they might have like some connection and they can get okay no we we don't we're not hiring but we know these people we know this this person that could like maybe be interested and so like yeah mm -hmm. i love that so, how have you two like how important has networking been for you two in figuring out oh <laughs> yeah everything. internships and fellowships and everything. careers um well i know now like we're slowly go coming back to normal like to the normal times where we're meeting people in conferences again so that's also great for networking i know that can be even like more daunting because sending an email is kind of easy you don't see the other person on the other side but if you have a chance to go to a conference or somewhere where you kind of meet people like that's also great because people will remember your face more and your name and so that's also like really good chance yeah, um yeah. Arahi, i know you mentioned the farm bill before and Many of us don't know what that is. And so could you please explain to us what the farm bill is and also if it has global consequences or if it's more um, or if its effects are more here for the USA? Thanks for that. Um, so the farm bill is the largest agricultural piece of legislation in the United States. And what makes it special is that is a, it's a must pass piece of legislation. So it's not something that just can be, you know, every year pushed under the rug. Um, it is something that comes up for reauthorization every five years. And 
the United States needs to pass it. It is a must-pass bill. So as a result, everyone gets really involved in the farm bill process and tries to find a way to uh, insert their own sort of interest or influence a policy um, for like the year before and in a lot during the year of reauthorization. The farm bill contains, oh gosh, I think it's like 13 chapters at this point. Um, and it covers policies related to agriculture, including forestry. People forget that, but forestry is also covered in the farm bill. And the I think the Congressional Budget Office has estimated that, you know, it'll the farm bill over the course of five years of its authorization costs around $430 billion. So it's really big in terms of its reach, in terms of its breadth of issues that are covered. And it's also um, a big vehicle for funding for a lot of, of agricultural and forestry programs in the United States. So things like research and extension are funded through the Farm Bill, things like um, nutrition programs, the forestry program. For folks who are interested in economics, there's an entire section, a chapter on credit, there's also another chapter on um, commodities futures trading, which I, I that just goes right over my head. That chapter. Um, there's stuff. There's a chapter on horticulture. There's a chapter on crop insurance. Like anything sort of related to agriculture, you'll find in the farm bill. So it's a very important piece of legislation because it covers almost all of a significant portion of the acreage in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, that's what the Farm Bill is. It's coming up, I should mention, for reauthorization next year in 2023. So I would encourage everyone who's interested in agriculture, either through research, through extension, through the actual implementation of practices on the ground, um, to look it up, to get interested, just do like a control F on, on the farm bill for any word. And I'm sure you'll find something, <laughs> a provision in there that you'll get excited uh, to learn more about. Mm -hmm. And we okay. can use more young people, especially like getting engaged oh, yeah. in, in yeah. farm bill advocacy and like really calling their representatives, calling their senators to like shake things up this next go around. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, this is kind of relevant to me because I'm currently working as part of extension for Washington State University. So maybe I'm funded through something like this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like now that we're talking about extension and research, are you familiar with kind what kind of topics like we need we need research on in terms of regenerative agriculture and soil health. Do you have, yeah, some? Yeah, so Christina, I'm so glad that you actually work with the extension program. Let me start off by saying thank you for doing <laughs> the really hard work. <laughs> no, thank you. I think you're doing the hard work actually. No, man, like the job of translating science to folks on the ground and then also the reverse right like learning from farming communities about what research needs to be worked on in the university system mm -hmm. you are an incredible so the extension system is an incredible source of mm -hmm. 
inspiration of implementation, like they are the hubs of knowledge um, that I think yeah. often gets overlooked and undervalued. So thank you for doing what you do. I agree. Thank and you. She's the best person, and she's the best person to do this, literally. Oh, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, she's the best. <laughs> and also for those who don't know what extension is, because extension is something that it's that I don't know if it exists in other countries, but yes, for Charlotte even and, in Australia, does it exist? Yes, there is in Australia as well. I don't remember. Yes. <laughs> Maybe it has, it's more with, it has another it's, name. Uh, no, it's extension, but it's more on the government. So it's. I, I just feel like in here, it's pretty clear that we're like a bit of a, a link, like uh, as Arohi mentioned, like we're a bit of a link. And I don't, I, I haven't seen that in Australia or in Ecuador or. Uh, maybe maybe in, in like a smaller scale but here it's like pretty clear it's a pretty clear link so I, I like that but anyways oh so yeah keep going no, yeah sorry. so I'll I'll kind of turn the question back around and say you probably have a better idea of the kinds of research needs um that farmers and ranchers have have expressed because you're you're interfacing them with them uh daily with your work as an extension specialist or as an extension provider mm -hmm. um I'll share that from, so the work that I do with NRDC, with the Natural Resources Defense Council, is to change policy, is to advocate for either new programs or changes to existing programs in the farm bill. I'll just use the farm bill as an example, um, to make regenerative agriculture easier and to bring more acres under regenerative management. Mm -hmm. So that's my job. My job is to go and like prepare materials, um, write reports, do research, and then recommend programmatic changes to programs that and policies that are funded through the Farm Bill. Mm -hmm. As part of that, um, one thing I've learned through the last three or four, three or so years is how much long-term research is needed um, to help make a stronger case for regenerative agriculture. So I mentioned that regenerative ag is this philosophy of farming, right? It is, it's a, it's a decision-making framework. It's like, it's how you approach agriculture. It's not prescriptive. It's not meant to be prescriptive because it looks different depending on whatever region you are in the United States. Farming in harmony with nature in the desert will not look the same as farming in harmony with nature in the Maine or New Hampshire or Connecticut. Those are two very different ecosystems that require two very different approaches to agriculture. And even within the desert, right, you have different uh, management needs and management styles. So what we've learned my, my team and I interviewed 113 farmers and ranchers across the country to learn more about what regenerative agriculture looks like, what it feels like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, what it looks like on the ground for them, um, at, because they're the ones who are doing the work on the ground. And what we learned is that it takes a while um, for, for these growers who are practicing regeneratively to see the benefits on the landscape. Unfortunately, the way that, I don't know if it's like a, a combination of the way that university systems work, or if it's also a, a combination of the way that federal grants and foundation grants work, but 
the three-year or the one-year cycle of funding is not conducive to the kind of research that's needed to prove the benefits of a more holistic systems-wide approach to agriculture, which is what regenerative agriculture is. So what the farmers and ranchers that we spoke with told us they need on the research side are two things particularly. The first is way more investment in long-term demonstration farms that really show if you do these practices consistently, if you stack practices on top of each other, if you bundle them together over the course of five years, over the course of six and seven and 10 years and two decades, here are all of the outcomes that you can see and here are the ways that you can measure those increases in outcomes. Like that's what's really needed on the research side um, to help make the case for more regenerative, more investments in regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, the, the second thing I'll mention is the way, so regenerative ag is all about giving back to the land, right? It's not extractive. You're like finding ways, you're, well, what practices like cover cropping, right? Getting roots in the ground um, to help build soil organic matter and increase porosity so that you can retain more water on the landscape, right? Like all these practices that help build soil health, um, we need more investments in outcomes-based research. Like how do we measure all of these what are the outcomes that we should measure and then how do we measure them? Um, I think figuring out how to do that from a research and demonstration perspective can really help us, again, make the case that if the United States wants to leverage agriculture as a solution to our climate crisis, as a solution to our biodiversity crisis, as a solution to our water crisis, like all investing in those um, outcomes-based pilot efforts, um, can help us gather the data we need to make the case that regenerative agriculture can actually get us to where we need to go. The problem is like, you know, farmers, what they're interested in is just like yield and money. So they, it's hard to, to tell them like, oh yeah, you need to be more conscious, more sustainable. Like they, they don't care about it. They care more about money. So it's really, really hard to, to have this up. And this actually the works well with like another question that we have. How can we convince people that regenerative agriculture is far more profitable than industrial farming? Yeah, I'd actually push back on the on the premise of that response, Charlotte, and say that it's, I don't know that they don't care about it. I do think they care about it. It's just that the system is not designed and not set up to support them caring, caring about it, right? Like they see themselves- yeah, yeah. They see themselves as long-term stewards of the land. They know that their land is their livelihood. They want it to be around for multiple generations, right? Like they see the value in, in protecting their landscape. But unfortunately, policy at the federal level, policy at the state level, the way that our supply chains are set up and built, the way that contracts are set up and built are not designed to support the farmers in good stewardship, in good decision-making, right? So like all of the, the sort of the peripheral aspects of the food supply chain, that those aspects don't care about it. <laughs> I think the farmers do. And I think it's incumbent on <clears throat> folks like me who work in policy advocacy to change the policy so that we are rewarding 
we are changing policies so that we are rewarding and providing an economic benefit for that good stewardship. I also think that all of the folks along the supply chain, including consumers, including researchers, have a role to play in um, in figuring out how their work, their part of the food web, whatever part they work in, um, how they can change that part of the food web to to support that kind of um, decision making too. Yeah, I agree with Arahi. Like, I think Charlotte maybe when you say like some farmers only care about money like maybe that's the what comes to mind when we think about industrial farming because then we yeah we see this one person in this like huge land that is just monocrops but i feel like there's a bit of a shift and like more young people are taking over small farming and more diversified farming and those are the people that don't care as much about the money though you still need to make enough to like support yourself but I also just wanted to share that, like uh, as part of the work I do, we have we are part of a of a grant that's called Soil to Science, and we're going to be doing some on farm trials with farmers. So we have to teach them. We're going to teach them, but we're also going to let them do the trials themselves because we don't. Well, researchers are like we don't want to come and be like you have to do it this way. Like we are going to guide them, but we also want their input. And so it's just really exciting to hear that maybe thanks to the work that Arahi and other people are doing in the policy side of things that we are able to do this in this side of things. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to share about this grant because I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to work on it. I know we're going to be, my, my role, especially like I work with um, Latino and Latina uh, farmers. And so that's my link like I'm a link between the research and the farmers and so I'm going to be working with them and I'm pretty excited about it so thanks thanks for your work Arohi because I, I know it comes from up high to have this funding as well yeah it does come from up high yeah so I want to be totally dismissive you're right that farmers do care about profit yeah. they do care about like this is their livelihood they need to make a living they want to make money I don't want to say that all farmers like want to do this for free. I know that's not the case. <laughs> they see this as their livelihood. Um, but there are so until we can change the way that, you know, we're subsidizing degenerative or until we're change the way that we're subsidizing industrial agriculture. So in towards ones um, where we're rewarding soil health and improvements in soil health and, and regenerative agriculture until we can do all of that. Um, there are small ways that we can message that we're showing both farmers and policymakers um, how regenerative agriculture can save them money and make them a little bit more profitable. I and mean, we're seeing that especially on the reducing the use of uh, how much money folks can save by not by building soil health and not having to use or purchase synthetic fertilizers, yeah. fossil fuel produced fertilizers for their landscape, right? So that investments in cover cropping and green manure and uh, composting and um, reduced tillage, right? Like keeping all of that yeah. <clears throat> organic matter on the fields, like that's, that's in-house supplied fertility. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. And that's and money that they can say that farmers can save um, that they can then reinvest in another part of their business, right? So there is yeah. a way to talk about it in that in that aspect. I yeah, I feel like nowadays we need to, you know, adapt, for example, the crops to the environment and not the environment to the crops. 
You're so right, Charlotte. And I don't know if you remember, but that's what um, Dr. Michael Kotutwa Johnson, who really? is, uh, yeah, he's a farmer in the in the Hopi tribe um, in the United States. He actually opened up our panel on regenerative agriculture at the Borlaug Dialogue saying something very similar. Really? The way indigenous <laughs> communities have approached agriculture is they adopt, they adopt to their environment. Yeah. They don't control yeah. their environment to the crop. Dr. Johnson, he's a Hopi farmer, so he farms in the desert and he is dry farming corn in the desert yes. with like four to six inches of rain, rainwater a year or something like that. He's able to grow corn fields and corn crops. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. You know, I'm thinking just like uh, before we move on to the next question, like when we were talking about how can we convince people that re regenerative agriculture is far more profitable? Maybe profitable is, I don't know if it's the right word because profitable makes you think more about money. Whereas we're talking about a different kind of value. So maybe you won't get as much money, but you get all these other benefits like ecological benefits. And I know that's a conversation for another time, like how to shift, how to, because this is so valuable, like this ecological benefits that- yeah. In it's a long term because like it's long term it's not like a uh, short term it's long term so we need to yeah. think more long term yes so yeah i just wanted to mention that like profit versus value like it's it's very different so yeah, yeah more quality than quantity as well <laughs> you actually both of you are, are making you remember about um one of the things that that i learned from the the farmers that we interviewed was that it's not just about profitability like the price that you see at the grocery store it's like what are all the ways that the, the cost of food is actually not taking into account all of the inputs and all of the things that go into producing oh, yeah. that food right like the the what we're paying at the grocery store or at the farmers more likely at the grocery store is not the the true co cost of production right no. and um the overlap between the number of acres in the United States of corn and soy that receive um, federal payments through the crop insurance program. So if you overlay that map on top of the number of acres that use um, synthetic inputs like pesticides and fungicides and herbicides and fertilizers, the, the overlap is pretty significant. So another way to think about, you know, profitability or value is that the federal government's subsidizing the use of a lot of these harmful toxic products. And so if we took the the value of if we took that subsidy away, I think food would cost a lot different. If we paid oh, yeah. people a living wage, food would cost different, especially if we paid like our farm worker populations are, they are not valued. They are underpaid. They work under horrific conditions. Like if they were oh, yeah. paid a living wage, I think our, the cost of food would be very different. We would be having a different conversation about what profitability looks like and what it means. And people, they, they don't value that. They don't, they, they, they don't realize that it's so hard and yeah, and it's so precious, and we, we should like thank every every day, like when we go to the grocery shopping, just like thank you <laughs> for this potato. Without farmers, we can't live. <laughs> we need food. Yes, I. That's a bit of a reminder for us and for everyone that yeah, listen to this, not to waste your food. Like just eat everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. 
there's a farmer out there that it doesn't matter if it snows, if there's wildfires, if it's if the if temperatures like super hot, like someone's working out there. And it's usually people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. You mentioned it's up to everyone, to the consumers, the food, everyone in the food chain. We all have responsibility uh, for how our food systems are shaped. So can you give us examples of how people can advocate from their own countries or their own jobs or like sometimes we feel powerless, but we're actually very powerful. So can you give us examples of what we can do to shape the food systems for better? I love this question. It's my favorite one to answer. (laughs) And I'll give two, I'll give two responses. The first is you are a consumer you spend money and people, corporations, companies, establishments pay attention to how you spend money. You can vote with your dollars for a different kind of food system. I'm not asking for you to change behavior overnight. I know that it is very hard to make a living in this country and it is tough to afford um, regeneratively grown, organically grown foods. Like I understand that. Um, It doesn't have to be a hundred percent change overnight. I think changing one thing every week, every month, striking up a conversation with a farmer at a farmer's market, asking the manager of your grocery store, what percentage of the food that they source is from a farmer in their state, in that state, like those little tiny questions can have massive ripple effects down the line. Um, And so I encourage each and every one of us as as a consumer to use our voice in that way, to vote with our dollars for a more regenerative, a more equitable uh, food and farming system. The second thing I'll say is So you mentioned in my introduction, and I mentioned earlier, I worked on Capitol Hill. I was a staffer, which meant that, you know, for the first part of my career in D.C., I was on the receiving end of phone calls from constituents who were either very, usually very irate and angry and frustrated with how their senator voted or made a decision or said a speech about something on the floor. I am a huge fan and advocate for everyone picking up the phone and calling their congressperson, calling both of their senators and saying, hey, miss or mister or Mrs. So-and-so, I hear the farm bill's coming up for reauthorization next year. I want to see XYZ changed. I want to see the federal government reform the federal crop insurance program so that we're rewarding farmers for building healthy soil. I want more money invested in research and extension programs that help um, bridge the gap between the need for more soil health research and the need for more soil health demonstration programs. Like you have a voice. You don't have to know the ins and outs of every single policy or every single provision. That's what I'm hired to do. That's my job. But you can call and say and ask your representative, ask your senator to vote a particular way to 
to, you know, to raise a, the profile of a, of a particular issue like regenerative agriculture, like soil health, like climate change, um, use your voice and, and make those calls. Don't be nervous. It's usually young folks, you know, in their 20s, like answering the call, they will listen. Um, and I've seen decision makers, I've seen senators change their mind based on the calls that they get from their constituents. So don't underestimate the impact of your voice. Decisions and changes are made by those who show up. So please, my one ask is show up. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is, wow. <laughs> so inspiring. <laughs> and if you need help finding, like figuring out how to do that, how to call, um, like reach out to me on LinkedIn, let me know. And I'm more than happy to, to help you, uh, to help you find that information. Sharma for president. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that was great. That was an amazing conversation. And we have three last questions. So the first, the, the first question, <laughs> the first last, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so what is the best and the worst advice that you received? Yeah, and before I get into that, I know you have a bunch of STEM, like folks who work in STEM fields. Yeah. Um, I'll say this, I wish more researchers, more folks who worked in STEM called, called their congresspeople, called their senators. They need to hear from folks who are doing the research, who are doing the science, who are helping with implementation. Your voice matters. And you never know if you leave your contact information, a staff member may reach back out to you to ask for, for like a follow-up email or a follow-up meeting. Um, to learn more about the work that you're doing. Do not be afraid to, to like step up and fight for, for the research work that you know needs to be done. Oh gosh, Charlotte, you emailed me this question ahead of time and I still like, I could not <laughs> think about <laughs> the best and worst advice I've ever received. <laughs> I think I'm sure I've forgotten all of the worst advice that I've ever received because I never <laughs> wanted to think about it again. <laughs> um Ah, the best advice. I'll share this, which is from my manager at the at my current job. She once told me that she trusts me not to take on the world. And like that really hit home for me. I have a tendency to want to solve every single crisis and every single problem, and I give my I give a lot of myself to that but it is draining and it makes me, it can lead to a less effective, less fulfilled me. Um, so I'm very conscious now of that piece of that, that piece of advice that she shared, which is like, do what you can with the power that you have in the work that you do. And I like, that's helped me a lot. <laughs> oh. So what's the most important lesson you learn over your career? The most important lesson I've learned over my career. So I work in politics. I work in public policy. Mm -hmm. The most important lesson I've learned in my career is that power does not want to disrupt itself. That it takes people who are committed, seriously committed. It takes people who are willing to invest the time in becoming issue area experts. It takes people who are dedicated to public service and to a particular cause. And it takes people who 
are willing to listen and learn from communities, um, especially those who are have historically been left out of conversations. It takes those kinds of people to break power dynamics and change how decisions are made. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah. I know I, that's it's why, almost that's like why I have a theme. It's almost like I have a theme, huh? <laughs> that's why I wanted to interview her. Like she's amazing. She's like <laughs> Sharma for president. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Literally. <That's> <laughs> okay, last question. So what are three books you recommend to the audience? And also oh, why? This is so easy. Okay. Okay, go. Braiding Sweetgrass by Dr. Oh my Robin Wallkimmerer. So, uh, yeah, so knew it. oh yeah. I knew it. I had two other women oh, on yes. this call as co-hosts. I knew that oh. was gonna be a hit. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> That's the perfect book. It's the perfect book. So braiding sweetgrass. The second one is Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. His big thing is all about like fungi and Ooh. root systems yeah. and like, oh my god, it is beautiful. It is just it's very beautiful. <laughs> Entangled life. Mm-hmm. And then my third recommendation is um, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents by an incredible author by the name of Octavia Butler, who is oh, a science that. fiction writer. Yeah. Now, Charlotte, now that you're in California, so she sets these two books in the con, like in California in like 2032 or some something like that. Futuristic for her time. She wrote these books back in um, like the early 2000s or something. And it's set in a California in the in a United States that was very prescient for her to think of at that time. Um, but kind of scary to read about now, given just like our history with the last administration. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's great. Thank you so much for this book recommendations. Like, I love asking about books because you you understand better the the person from what they read. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you both are such delightful human beings. Um, you too. <laughs> thank you for spending a Monday evening with me and sharing a little bit more about yourselves too. Um, you're the listeners of this podcast are very lucky to have hosts like the two of you so (laughs) we are lucky to have you (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy I got to meet you uh, even though I wasn't at the conference with Charlotte but I'm happy she brought some contacts to the power of networking so yeah (laughs) thank you Charlotte (laughs) thank you both thank you it was so nice to meet you you (laughs) thank you bye-bye Thank you for listening another episode of the Illuminata podcast. I hope you enjoyed and stay tuned for the next episode.